Thank you for listening. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit the Hay Player at hayfestival.org. Hi. Hello and thank you very much for um, braving uh, the weather. Um, and um, the world can, I think it's fair to say, seem like a, a frightening and a lawless place just now. Um, as we look on at atrocities from Burma to Syria to Yemen, um, we see all sorts of horrors and it's very uh, natural for us to think well, what we want, what we demand, is justice. But our speaker today, who is Sarah um, Nowen of uh, Cambridge University, um, is really invaluable in these times to help us think through, what do we mean by justice? Is it as simple as just saying we want justice, or is justice, once you pick away at it, a bit more complicated than you might have thought? Um, and uh, she's had an interesting career, which started very much with the theory um, of uh, international law and then moved on to the practice and the practice, as she'll explain, has made her realise quite how complicated it is and how it's maybe a mistake to assume that you can have a technical legal answer to deep-rooted political um, problems. Um, but I don't think anyone needs any more from me now, so I'm going to hand over to Sarah who will talk you through this uh, absolutely urgent issue. Thank you, Tom. Peacemaking. What's law got to do with it? After I taught a course on this topic at a university, the students refer to it as the Tina Turner course in international law. Now, I'm not sure about all the parallels, but one parallel exists. As with love, this is a topic that merits the attention of all of us. As I'll illustrate today, there are more and more proposals for rules as to how to respond to international crimes and how to respond to or how to deal with peacemaking efforts. But the point I want to make is that it is essential that all of us ask, what does this mean for peace? What does this mean for justice? Whose peace? Whose justice? So in the rest of today's talk, I want to take you to two places. The first part of the talk is about some experiences in Uganda and Sudan, where I did extensive research for my first book. And then the second part of the talk, I want to illustrate how some of the findings of that research in Uganda and Sudan could be very relevant for some current legal developments and some current proposals in international law. And the specific proposal I'm referring to is the drafting of a convention on the prevention and punishment of crimes against humanity. So there we go, off to Uganda and Sudan, specifically to northern Uganda and to Darfur. So I was doing research on the impact of the International Criminal Court on the legal systems of Uganda and Sudan. But the great thing of doing interviews with people is that they usually answer your questions, if you're lucky, but then also say between the lines, well, you may have your obsession with this little rule in this particular statute, but there are actually issues that, to us, are much more interesting and much more important than the thing that you're researching. So they're trying to steer the researcher in a different direction. And one such question was the millennia-old question of the meaning of justice. Now, in both countries, the International Criminal Court had intervened to bring justice. But I encountered people who challenged the idea that the type of justice the International Criminal Court brought was or amounted to justice. So let me give you five examples. The first example emerged from a discussion with a leader of the Acholi community. And the Acholi community lives in northern Uganda and is the community that has been most affected by the decades-long conflict between the Lord's Resistance Army, a movement you may all have heard of, especially due to the controversial video Kony 2012 at some stage, and the, the Ugandan government. 
And this Acholi leader dismissed that the International Criminal Court was bringing justice. Or he, he dismissed the type of justice brought by the International Criminal Court. And he said, and I quote here, the court system is justice through punishment. The offender and offended are put aside. This leads to polarization, which will lead to death. Instead, he argued for a more restorative form of justice, a justice that focuses on rebuilding relationships between people. Now, this may explain the rather, at first sight, perhaps strange fact that it was the Acholi people, the people that had been most affected by the war, that had lobbied the Ugandan government for an amnesty. They had begged the government, please give the Lord's Resistance Movement, give them amnesty so that they can return home. It was the victims who had asked for amnesty here. But the explanation for the Acholi begging for amnesty is also found in a second conception of justice, a conception of justice I also came across in Darfur. And that understanding of justice is justice is the end of the war, justice is the end of violence, justice is the end of crimes. So this is what a prominent Darfuri leader told me. He first said, we need NATO, the EU and the ICC, the International Criminal Court. So I asked him, why do Darfurians need the International Criminal Court? He said, for justice. So I said, what is justice? And he responded, justice is the end of the war. So I asked, how is the ICC going to end the war? He said, by arresting President Bashir and his party. And then I asked, once there is peace in Darfur, the Ajawid, who are the respected elders in the community, will do real justice. So I asked, what is real justice? Real justice is done through Judea. And Judea is a mechanism that is a mix of arbitration and mediation that usually leads to compensation and focuses, again, on the restoration of relationships. So like my first interlocutor, this interlocutor defined real justice as justice involving the restoration of relationships. But he also introduced an intermediate concept of justice, namely justice is the end of the war. Justice is the end of fighting, justice is the end of the crimes. A third concept of justice was justice as redistribution. And a traditional leader in Darfur said, what we need is wealth sharing, what we need is power sharing, that is justice. A fourth concept was justice as formal equality. And they, the, the, the people who said this, were angry with the International Criminal Court because the International Criminal Court had opened investigations only into the Lord Resistance Army and not into the government of Uganda. And they said the government of Uganda has also committed crimes against us. And you can't bring justice by doing partial justice, by looking only at one side. Now, this argument has been made not just within one specific context, like of Northern Uganda, but we've also seen it a lot in the newspapers, I think, with respect to the International Criminal Court more generally, that a court that opens investigations only in Africa cannot do real justice. Now, the fifth concept of justice that I came across was accountability and punishment. And you may think, well, now, here we are, that's what the ICC is all about, accountability and punishment. And yet there was pushback because the ways in which you can hold people accountable and the ways you can punish people vary. To people who have lost everything, their houses, their livelihoods, their jobs, their security, the opportunities for the rest of their lives. Imprisonment in Scheveningen, you know, or detention centers in, in Western prisons do not necessarily amount to punishment. So here I quote one Acholi elder. If the LRA leaders are taken to The Hague, they will be locked up with air conditioning and will live the lifestyle of Ugandan ministers. <laughs> but they will have to come here and make up with the community. Let them live with the people whose ears they have chopped off. Let them see for the rest of their lives what suffering they have caused. That is punishment. In our view, ICC punishment is very light. Let them morally come and confess. So we've seen five concepts of justice. Restoration of relationships, ending the violence, ending conflict, ending war and crimes, redistribution, formal equality, and accountability and punishment, but not necessarily through imprisonment. Now, I don't want to say that this list is exhaustive. I don't want to say that these 
concepts are mutually exclusive. Most of us here, I think, will want a justice that has elements of all of them. But the real question is, what happens if A, resources are limited, and secondly, if in a concrete situation the pursuit of these different objectives of justice seems to clash? For instance, if the pursuit of criminal justice is seen to be an obstacle to an end of the violence. Now, some people will say, it depends on the culture, the prioritization. Some cultures are very forgiving and other cultures insist on punishment. And particularly because I've done my research in Northern Uganda and Darfur, people likely say, well, the Africans are very willing to forgive. But I don't think the explanation is in the culture because there were people in Northern Uganda who insisted on the death penalty, but that was for crimes committed by the Ugandan army because the Ugandan army was not considered part of the community, whereas the LRA was considered part, at least originating in that community. So the point I make here is that the prioritization is context specific. I think most of us, but I mean, this is a hypothesis, when the bombs, in instead of rain, it was bombs that were falling right now, what we wanted is, was this to stop, first thing. However, the moment that stability sets in and the becomes more stable, more entrenched, over the years, the demands for criminal accountability increase. We've seen this in Spain. After Franco, forget about the past. Now, 25, 35 years later, there are more demands for justice. We've seen this in Argentina. An amnesty was passed. Now, still, there are people demanding for criminal justice. I saw it in northern Uganda when I did these interviews in 2008. People were extremely angry with the International Criminal Court because they thought it threatened the peace process. When I returned in 2011, people were much more positive about ICC simply because the Lord's Resistance Army had moved to South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo and was therefore far less of a threat. But then, of course, asked the question in South Sudan and the Democratic Republic of the Congo what they want. And actually, I think we may see something similar in Northern Ireland where in 1998 the focus was on ending the conflict, but there are still demands for justice. So what to take home from all of this is, at least my argument is, demands for justice, the meaning of justice is context specific, and it dep depends on competing objectives. Now this raises some fundamental questions, and I would like to you to keep these fundamental questions in your mind when we then go to the second part of this talk, the concrete legal project that lawyers are working on. And the fundamental questions are, first, who should have the final say if visions of justice diverge? Secondly, is it possible to determine now and to put into law how international crimes should be responded to now and in the future, given the diversity of context within which such crimes are committed. The concrete legal project that I would like to talk about is the Draft Convention on Crimes Against Humanity. Last summer, the International Law Commission, which is a commission composed of 34 international lawyers from all over the world, reporting to the United Nations General Assembly, submitted a draft for such a convention. And it submitted this to states, and asked states to give comments by the 1st of December 2018. Now, I suggest we all put that date in our diary because it is crucial that the debate about this convention is not limited to the halls of government because the proposals are based on, um, on a vision of justice and a vision of what society should look like. These are, this is a lawmaking process, but law is made by politicians. And we, as a society, should have a debate about what we want, what type of law we want our politicians to make. This is hey, this is about imagining the world. And I think we should also imagine what justice could and should look like in a very context-specific way. In other words, don't leave this project to lawyers like myself. Now, I don't want to say that this debate is absolutely necessary with respect to whether or not crimes against humanity should be crimes. Crimes against humanity are acts such as murder, extermination, enslavement, deportation, apartheid, sexual violence, and forced disappearance, inhumane acts of a similar character. 
when, and that is what makes them crimes against humanity instead of ordinary crimes, when they are committed as part of a widespread or systematic attack on a civilian population. So there is an element of systematicity or, or an element of being at widespread that makes them crimes against humanity. I think we can all agree that these are crimes. And even if you don't agree, then it is, well, this convention is not going to change it because these acts are already crimes under international law. They were tried at Nuremberg as such. They have been tried by the tribunals for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and the International Criminal Court is already trying them. So what then is the purpose of this convention if these acts are already crimes? Well, twofold. First, to create a duty to prevent these crimes, which I think, again, we can agree, pretty good thing. <laughs> Secondly, however, and that's where the fo my focus is on, it wants to oblige states, states where the crimes were committed, and all states in the world where an alleged offender of crimes against humanity may be present, to respond to these through criminal proceedings. Again, we may say this is generally a good thing. However, the point I want to make is that crimes against humanity are often committed as part of a very complex political and social context, and they are intertwined with that political and uh, social context. Now, the real, there's a real problem if the pursuit of criminal justice for crimes against humanity becomes an obstacle to addressing these broader contexts within which these crimes are committed. So, to repeat, what I... Want, I don't want to question whether these acts should be crimes. I don't want to question whether we should prevent them. The only thing I want to ask or to spur a debate about is whether we should always respond to crimes against humanity through criminal trials, especially in light of the different conceptions of justice that we've started with. Now, one context in which I think um, criminal proceedings may not be the right response is one of a negotiated settlement. And a negotiated settlement that tries to end a civil war or that tries to overcome op political oppression. And that is one of several contexts in which the question arises, how should a state deal with massive violations of human rights committed in the past? Now, if you have a total victory, it's pretty easy. You know, if one side wins. Think about Germany after the Second World War. Think about even about genocide Rwanda. One party wins. That party can then determine the terms upon which justice is done. And theoretically, you could prosecute everybody. However, in terms of the meaning of justice, if you interview the people who are in prison and ask them why are you in prison, they won't say because I committed crime, but because I lost a war. It is considered as victor's justice. But the interesting thing of a negotiated settlement is that the parties have agreed to go for their second best option. They've realized we can't get a military victory, we have to negotiate. And the question of how to deal with the past then usually also becomes subject of these negotiations. The example I would like to discuss today is that of the miracle transition of South Africa from apartheid to a democratic, united, non-racial state. So when the National Party and the ANC realized neither of them were going to get the total victory they'd been fighting for, they agreed to negotiate. The biggest concession for the National Party was to agree to political reform, including dismantling apartheid and majority rule. The concession for the ANC was to focus on the future rather than the past. Implicitly, it promised not to challenge the legality of the previous regime, not to challenge the legality of everything that happened under apartheid that was legal under apartheid. However, the ANC did assist on some form of accountability for acts that were even illegal even under the apartheid regime, such as torture or murder. But apartheid itself, which at the time was already a crime against humanity, was not legally challenged. People were not, would not be prosecuted for it. Now, the National Party, however, did not want to give up power if it risked prosecution even for these other acts, these torture, murder. And therefore, ultimately what the ANC put in place was a transitional justice mechanism that had a truth commission that would look into everything that happened in the past so that at least the truth would be known, but also amnesty, because that was a precondition for the National Party to give up power. However, that amnesty was conditional. One could get amnesty only if one told the truth 
about what one had done. Now, this reversed the logic of criminal proceedings. In criminal proceedings, one not only has a right to remain silent, but one also has an incentive to main, remain silent. You don't want to incriminate yourself. In this Truth Commission process of amnesty in exchange for truth, you had an incentive to tell as much as you had, because it was only then that you could am get amnesty for these acts. So people said this is actually an incentive for, to create more truth so that we know better what happened in our country. Now, the interesting thing is that even though some South Africans were very critical about this amnesty, especially that it was also a bar to civil proceedings, so to getting reparations in courts, internationally it received widespread praise. And it wasn't just the fact that South Africa transitioned, but also how it transitioned that received such praise. I think it's fair to say that Nelson Mandela became the biggest political figure alive of his time, and it was not because he was seen as giving in to political necessity by giving in, okay, we'll give you an amnesty to get this transition. No, I think it is because he symbolized the presumed willingness of the oppressed majority to pursue a different type of justice than Victor's justice and to, by foregoing Victor's justice, actually to promote reconciliation. So states at the time did not argue South Africa has to prosecute a crime against humanity of apartheid, even though it was already a crime, ag or a crime against humanity at the time. Nor did any other state intervene and say, well, then we're going to prosecute crimes against humanity in our country when these people are traveling, people of the apartheid regime. So the key question is, now, 25 years later, has international consensus changed? And the view is that South Africa should have prosecuted. Or that Norway, when F.W. de Klerk, if, if he were to travel instead of 1993 to collect his Nobel Peace Prize in Oslo, if he were to travel today to Oslo, Norway should have arrested him. The burning political question that this drafting of the convention therefore raises, raises is how to weigh the very strong argument in favor of prosecution against the implications and the justifications for a negotiated settlement such as in South Africa, and particularly what to do when these objectives of peace and justice may seem to clash. Now, if we want to think that through, we need to look at some of the lessons that the South African experience teaches us. First of all, insisting on criminal proceedings may make negotiations more difficult. And that does it both procedurally and substantively. Procedurally, what do negotiations require? It requires one to treat one's opponent as a political opponent, not as a criminal opponent. So the National Party had to change its framing of the ANC as not, and did not approach it as a terrorist organization because you can't negotiate with a terrorist organization. It had to recognize the opponent as a political party. Vice versa, the ANC couldn't treat the National Party as an enemy of mankind who had committed a crime against humanity, but had to see it as a political opponent. That was necessary even to engage in the procedure of negotiations. But it also has, of course, implications for the substance. If people know that by entering into negotiations, the end result will be a situation in which they will be handed over to either a domestic court or an international court or a foreign court and then get probably life imprisonment for a crime against humanity, it's quite unlikely that they will sign. And we've seen that in Northern Uganda where Joseph Kony refused to sign the peace agreement. Now, this is a quite difficult example because a lot of people say, well, Joseph Kony would not have signed anyway. And it's true, I don't know, I can't look into his mind. The point I want to make is that as a rational person, you can imagine that you don't want to sign an agreement if there's a big, big risk that you end up in prison for a very long time. Now, this debate, the so-called peace versus justice debate, has received a lot of attention. But a lot of officials, including the former UN Secretary General Ban Ki-moon, have literally stated that we are beyond this debate and have said peace may not go without criminal justice, saying it may be true that insisting on criminal accountability will perpetuate bloodshed, but law cannot give in to this political reality. Now, this may sound as a very principled stance, but it has consequences. First of all, it leads the parties, it encourages the parties to pursue a total victory. 
and it discourages negotiations. Secondly, unless international actors are willing and able, and particularly the ability issue is a problem, to stop the war, it will mean that the war continues, that people will continue to die. And that raises an ethical dilemma. How ethical is it for people in safe places to insist on a norm of which other people are feeling the consequences? For whom a truce at gunpoint may have been better than no truce at all. So this is the argument about the political necessity of possibly of foregoing criminal proceedings. But in South Africa, another argument was made. It wasn't just that it was politically necessary to get the transition, but it was also that it, was, that it led to a better form of justice, that their transitional justice arrangement that I just described would do more justice, that it would bring out more truth, that it was better for restoring relationships than criminal justice. And the interesting thing of this argument is that it's not peace versus justice, but it is one form of justice versus another form of justice, as we saw in Uganda and Darfur. So what we need to discuss now when we think about this draft convention, what should this convention be after? What is the bottom line? Is it about putting people in prison? Well, if that's the case, then indeed, there's very little alternative to criminal proceedings. Is it about punishment? Well, even if it's about punishment, one can think, remember the, the words of that Acholi minister, or that, that Acholi leader, for whom imprisonment would not be punishment. One can think of punishment in forms other than through punishment. For instance, community service, that what he mentioned. Is it about accountability? Well, in that case, think about the South African model, because in applying for an amnesty, people had to own up the acts for which they applied. You couldn't apply for amnesty for somebody else. You had to say, I did this. And you can say, well, that is a form of accountability. Is it about condemnation of acts? Well, perhaps the ultimate condemnation of an act is by radically breaking it. The ultimate condemnation of apartheid is by moving, entirely moving away with it or away from it. And of course, there's a problem if the pursuit of criminal justice becomes an obstacle to doing so. And this is about victims' rights. Now, if it's about victims' rights, it becomes hugely complicated because there are so many different kinds of victims. They're the victims of the crimes. They're the victims of the situation as a whole, like apartheid, who want to move on. They're the survivors. So this brings us back to the fundamental questions with which we began. Who should here have the final say? And secondly, should we determine now how um, crimes against humanity should be responded to in the future, given the diversity of contexts within which they are committed? Now, acknowledging the validity of these questions does not mean putting this draft convention in a dustbin. I think all that is needed is that the duty to prosecute is sufficiently qualified in order to be able to take into account some of the considerations I've mentioned. Now, in my reading of the current draft, it doesn't sufficiently allow for that, and therefore there needs to be some text included that does so. For instance, what is the country pursuing? Which objectives is it pursuing? Has it consulted the population at large about the objectives it's pursuing? Have there been the right processes? Are victims' rights respected? Well, this is my view, but I'm really keen to hear about your view <laughs> on whether the Convention should do that. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sarah. I'm going to just ask a few questions and then I'm, I'm going to bring in, in, in the audience. Um, I mean, the first one, uh, I mean, fascinating um, uh, run around the deep conflicts that there are in situations of conflict um, there between different things that we might want to try and achieve. But I wonder, is it, you know, how we make this International Criminal Court work? Is that a bit too much of a nice problem to have to worry about at the moment in a world where America has never signed up and Trump's America seems less likely? I mean, 
is it a bit upside down to say we need to worry about the International Criminal Court having too much clout? Um, mm. does it, how much does it really have? Well, I would say we need to worry about it even more. Um, and that is for two reasons. First, as you indeed say, um, Trump and I think also his front in Russia, they are not primarily concerned with international norms. Mm. So therefore, we have to make sure that the international norms that are being proposed are actually um, very well considered and defensible vis-a-vis -vis them so that they are become stronger. And the second thing is, it's true, we may be well, ob obsessing as we usually do in a newspaper with the big conflicts, the big powers, we think, well, they don't seem to be caring about norms, so they're not relevant. But what I try to show with my research in Africa is mm. that, meanwhile, other countries, th these norms are still being applied. And there it is extremely important. And the remarkable thing with the United States is that it may not be signing up to these treaties in order to avoid being subject to their jurisdiction, but at the same time, it is hugely supporting the application of these regimes to others. Right, so <laughs> even in Trump's world, it's definitely worth worrying about that. Um, can we just talk for a minute about Syria, which is perhaps the um, humanitarian catastrophe that's most on people's minds at the moment? Um, and do you think that this, um, do you see a tension between justice on the one hand and peace on the other there or because any just solution would obviously involve Assad going but do you, do you think that that just demand to see this bad man punished is running into tension in the way that you saw in um, in Africa yeah so um, one thing that I hope uh, my story brings across is that my view is really that it it, it all depends so much on context and it so much depends on what people in that community want. And I must say that I haven't done research in Syria and I don't really know. But th the key thing is, will the Syrians at some stage um, have the freedom to have a debate about how to deal with their past themselves? Or have these options already been precluded by decisions that have been made now already? And examples are, on the one hand, the debate about justice is not very prominent simply because the International Criminal Court doesn't have jurisdiction over Syria um, and the Security Council is blocked about whether or not to refer the matter to Syria. But on the other hand, there are lots of debates already about justice for Syria, which are not necessarily, uh, the debates do not necessarily involve a lot of Syrians. And so there is already a United Nations mechanism that is collecting evidence in case there will be criminal proceedings. And of course, this activities such as these do have an impact on sitting heads of state who may be less willing to go to a safe haven simply because there are no safe havens if conventions such as these are widely ratified, mm. because every state would be under an obligation to prosecute him. So even if there are no concrete justice actions yet, the rhetoric and the debates about it can already influence the, the conflict, including the desire to go for a total military victory. And so you, like, I'm just trying to draw out the, the yeah. real punch of that point, I think is that the fear on the part of Assad and his cronies that they might face prosecution down the line is making them potentially more brutal. Could be. Yes. Mm. Yeah. I, so I don't. Again, I can't look into his mind, but I, theoretically, I could see th really see this happening. And we've seen it in other countries. If I mention Sudan as an example now, as we all know, the International Criminal Court has brought an arrest warrant for President Bashir. Um, ha the International Court hasn't been able to arrest him, even though he's been traveling, simply because states didn't want to arrest him. But what is happening is that the entire country is currently held hostage to a president who was willing to step down several years ago, but now because of the arrest warrant doesn't, doesn't dare to do so. Do you feel, I mean, you, you quoted Ban Ki-moon saying we're beyond this kind of peace versus justice thing, but listening to you with you know five different concepts of justice, I'm wondering how much use or how much work this concept of justice does. Is it a bit of a polite fiction that we have to pretend that whatever we're doing, um, whatever the international community signs off on is justice. Um, and it would be better to just be honest about the fact that justice might very well be at tension with um, peace. Yeah, so the slogan, no peace without justice has become very prominent. But if we think about it, no peace there means, okay, no 
transition to ending conflict without justice in a sense of without criminal justice. Um, so it's actually justice in a very narrow way. And sometimes I wonder whether this slogan is mostly meant for, well, those who propagate it in the sense that you feel, well, if we can't prevent these conflicts, if we can't end them, at least we don't condone them. Mm. So at least we, we, do, we condemn them through criminal pr trials. Uh, but you think criminal trials might be a rather clunky way to do the condemning? Well, I think it all depends on the context. I mean, I, I'd love to see criminal trials of people who deserve criminal trials, but not if the consequences of pursuing that route means that you cannot get to a peace agreement. Mm. Because o other people are suffering while I'm watching the trial in The Hague. And I guess there's not much justice for you if you're caught inside a house as a six-month-old baby being no. bombed. I mean, it's, 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 it's a very powerful point, but just to look at it from the other side where the people who say you can't have enduring peace without justice you do sometimes see these things come up you mentioned northern ireland where you know it's a generation since lots of prosecutions were foregone um and yet that's still muttered about you look at south africa and um you hear claims about reparations a generation later in the united states of course you hear claims about reparations in relation to slavery so all of these situations where there wasn't a tidy resolution through justice. It is true that you are left with a simmering problem. Absolutely, but I think, it, it, first of all, it's good that these questions continue to exist. I mean, uh, the last thing that you should have is that fundamental questions such as what happened in our past are suddenly closed off. They're no longer dealt with. I also think it's good that they come back generations later when there is more stability, when there is a situation in which you can properly discuss these matters. But there is another uh, a problem, I think, with a lot of these, because this argument is often also made by those who say no peace without justice. But there's a huge social science problem here, which is about attribution. So very often they say, look, South Africa, there's a lot high rates of crime. There is um, all th th there's still enormous poverty. Uh, and that's because of the amnesty. Mm. And then, wait a second, why? how can we attribute that entirely difficult situation only to the fact of the amnesty. Very often an amnesty is a reflection of a bad situation. The bad story. Yeah, rather than the cause of the bad situation. And of course that bad situation reverberates. But Bishop Tutu, who was the, truth the, the chairman of the Truth Commission, has also said to South Africans, don't forget the very fragile situation we were in. Without that amnesty, this transition, the democracy we have today, we wouldn't have had. That's not to say that it means that reparations shouldn't be paid. There are huge problems and reparations should be paid. Um, but th challenging the amnesty on that ground is, I think, not valid. I think we should go to questions. As you can see, what Sarah is talking about affects so much of the world, uh, so many of the um, pressing um, and depressing things that, that, that we need to worry about on the world stage. Um, so I imagine, yeah, we've got lots of questions as I expected. Um, and um, let's start um, just here towards the... There's a lady there pointing. Oh. Which? Okay, there's the microphone. Hello. Yes, hi. Let's hi. go with you first. And we'll take three at once, but keep them crisp and then... I'll get Sarah to listen to us, uh, to take on as many as, as, as we've got time for. Okay, so in the current climate of austerity, I was wondering what effect lack of resources or economics has on yep. uh, justice in the, in the context you've been discussing. On the international stage? Yes. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, and shall we um, pass that back immediately behind you? Just for Thank you very much, Sarah. Just one question which may lead to another, um, like many. Why does the International Criminal Court not have jurisdiction over Syria. Yeah. Not have, uh, and if it were to have jurisdiction over Syria, who would decide? Who, who would decide whether there were crimes being committed against humanity, for instance? Yeah. Okay, fantastic. And in uh, then we've got one here. You, you didn't mention the effect of deterrence at all. Yeah. Um, does the ICC have any deterrent effect, and if so, on whom? And why didn't any of the people you interviewed talk about the deterrent effect? Okay. So, resources, deterrence, and uh, kind of who who decides, and particularly in relation to Syria. Yeah. So, really great questions. Thanks. So, austerity, um, financial resources, trials are extremely ex expensive. Um, 
but it depends also at which level you do them. So I'm really bad with numbers, and that's why I didn't go into physics or maths, and I'm into the, the, the arts and humanities, social sciences. And so I forgot the numbers. But we are talking, I think the ICC has an annual budget of 100 million uh, euros a year, um, and has, I think, well, five cases ongoing at, this, at one time. So th there's an enormous amount of money spent on a few cases. To link that to another question of deterrence, you can justify that. You can say, look, these few cases, they radiate throughout the world. They impact on millions of people around the world through the message they send. And this expressive function of justice is crucial. But if it comes to um, situations of transitional justice, there are very limited resources. And uh, again, I, I don't remember the figure the precise figures, but for instance, in Sierra Leone, there was a truth commission, there were reparations for victims, and there were trials. The trials were, I think, a thousand times the cost per perpetrator as what the victims got in reparations. Hmm. You know, and then that's the, the, the I don't want to sit here and say this is what should be happening, but what I do think what is important is that a society with limited resources, a society that's been devastated by war, has a chance to talk among themselves about, okay, what do we want to be prioritizing? And that was very clear in the South African context, where they said, look, and it was very, I mean, neoliberal almost, uh, th that the ANC, you know, the, the former co accused communist party, adopted an approach, we want people to be able to invest in this country. If we start massive prosecutions that will destabilize this country, deter investors, and that will do economic damage. And ultimately what we need is investment and that will be able to help lift people out of poverty. Now, of course, there's a huge debate going on in South Africa as to whether or not that helped or worked. Um, but I think the, the key question, or the element of the, your question, which I think is really important, is to look at the political eco economy of justice. So the second, oh, um, the International Criminal Court in Syria. So the International Criminal Court has jurisdiction on can have jurisdiction on three grounds. First, if the person who's accused is a national of a state party. So anybody here who is British uh, risks uh, the, uh, runs the risk of being uh, accused by the court on the ground that Britain is a state party. Secondly, all of us here, whether or not we're British, run the risk of being prosecuted if we do commit an international crime right now here, because the territory on which the crime is committed, if that is a state party, then the ICC has jurisdiction. Now, in the case of Syria, it's, it could have the ICC could have jurisdiction over um, Westerners fighting in Syria, who are the nationals of Western state, but not over, about over President Assad, because he's a Syrian national on Syrian territory, and Syrian is not a state party. Then the third way, and that's the way how the International Criminal Court got jurisdiction in Sudan and Libya, both states that are not parties, um, is through a Security Council referral. But what you need for that is unanimity among the P5, the five permanent members, and in the case of Syria, that wasn't there for blocking. So, and then the second part of your question, so if it is still possible, theoretically at least, that the Security Council refers the matter to the International Criminal Court, then the International Criminal Court would, has several stages in which they proceed. One of them is a pr preliminary examination. Now, I think that will be pretty easy because on the basis of newspaper reports and human rights reports, we know that atrocious things have happened. And then, but that, that's where your question becomes really interesting. Then they need to send investigators. But what do you do if the country doesn't want you in? So for instance, in Sudan, the ICC has never set foot there. All their evidence is based on evidence gathering in refugee camps around the country. And then third, I th thank you so much for raising that question about deterrence, because I think it is one of the key justifications for the entire project. The reason why I didn't mention it is, first of all, the empirical basis or the evidence about deterrence is very weak. Mm. Um, we, there are questions about deterrence at the national level, but at the international level, it's even more difficult, also because of the nature of these crimes. If you fear that the war threatens your existence, then thinking about criminal law may not be the first thing on your radar. So that's why it, it's quite difficult. Um, you asked about, or you asked about some evidence. There is anecdotal evidence of people in um, in particular areas of the world being concerned about the International Criminal Court and even people asking, well, is cannibalism a crime under the Rome Statute? You know, so people are talking about this court and in that sense it may have a deterrent 
uh, somewhat of a deterrent effect. But the, I think the key point that your question forces me to make is that there can be a tension between, on the one hand, promoting deterrence, which is actually entirely um, independent of the situation at hand. And that's also the argument that the International Criminal Court has used. We have to do justice in Uganda, irrespective of the consequences this has on the people in northern Uganda, because we have to send a message to Burma. We have to send a message to the United States. We have to send a message to other countries in Africa. But that raises the real question about utilitarianism. Can you use northern Uganda in order to send a message elsewhere? Um, I'm going to bring in more questions, but just can I just press you a little bit on the, on the point about deterrence? Because lots of these issues um, would arise in a national criminal justice system. So I think you, get, you might have a, a, a child abuser who's scared that they'll get caught and then ends up yeah. becoming a child murderer. You know, these, these, these things can happen, or like, you know, anything breaking bad, you see someone starts out as a drug dealer and ends up as a kind of lunatic mass murderer because like, the logic of being against the law can push you into some fairly dark places. Is there any sense in which the context you look at, the international context, are different? Or is it, is it just the same problem we wrestle with um, with the domestic criminal law? No, I think it is different. And one of the ways in which, well, first of all, again, it depends from conflict to conflict. And you need to analyze why people are fighting, why people are committing crimes. And sometimes it's true. They may be like ordinary criminals. But very often, the people who are fighting and even committing the crimes think that they're doing good. They're pursuing an ideology in which they think what they're doing is a good thing. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, they don't think that they are um, either bound by the law or violating the law, or they think that that law is a law of a Western conspiracy against them. Yeah, okay, so it's that political dimension again. Okay, um, right, one there, toward... Yeah. And then... If you consider that uh, South Africa is a good model, would it be better for the ICC to act more as um, a facilitator for making agreement between the two warring parties rather than looking to punish. Mm. Okay, good. Um, yeah, if I may, yes. um, you, you very, very strongly make the point, the link between politics and law and culture and everything goes with it. We've been here slightly before, though, haven't we, with the Genocide, Genocide Convention, post Rwanda, and everything went with it. And one of the consequences of that was then a, 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 a renewed demand on countries not to deal with the issue after it happened, but to get involved before it happened. And that led to... 1999 to the Chicago speech by Tony Blair, the whole business about responsibility to protect, and everything went with that. Are we in the same place again? So we bring in this new convention that puts more emphasis on, on countries doing something, and then that becomes another reason why we need to intervene to prevent it. I'm not saying it's a good thing or a bad thing, but is that one of the consequences we need to be con conscious of? So you're saying that we'd be back to where we were 15 I, years I'm, ago? I'm saying that we just need that there's, there, are, there are consequences to taking to taking this place and taking so taking a interest in in dealing in, in um in requiring more defense of human rights in the same way as our post rwanda we just we, we looked at genocide um countries then looked at what happened so that was revolting we need then to do something about it in advance or while it's happening and so that then led to the whole issue about responsibility yeah. to protect mm -hmm. and the, and if you like a, a justification for intervention I'm just curious where this where but, this but, might take but us. Sorry, are you, are you saying that's um, a problem? That, that, I'm that saying it's, it's, it is a problem in the sense that it can also be misused. And okay. so really the issue is how, how do we ensure that, that the, the, the exactly issue about whose justice is this, yeah. who, whose human rights are we defending? It doesn't get used as a cover for uh, other people. Exactly right. Okay, okay, terrific. And one more just here I can see on this side. So I, I can't, I literally, because of the light, I can't see... I can see someone's got a lot of hair there, that's all I can see. <laughs> <laughs> um, you you emphasise the importance of um, what communities want, which I, I think is, I, I agree with that. Um, in the light of that, I would like your thought on, on two points. So you said um, states are to give comment on the Convention on Crimes against humanity, but not all peoples and communities, especially within the kind of countries that we'd be talking about, accept state rule. Uh, or state rule and law, uh, certainly not in countries where the rule of law is weak, the formal rule mm -hmm. of law is weak. Mm -hmm. And secondly, connected to that, the Western uh, <coughs> justice community 
um, or is, is part of the Western, Western justice community's willing, unwillingness to engage with existing traditional um, and informal local justice practices, mm -hmm. perhaps part of the problem because we don't understand them mm. and we're not willing to understand them because we see it as informal. Well, that yeah, chimes with <coughs> what you're saying, doesn't it? Do yeah, you want to recap on those or did you get all those questions? No, I would love to follow up on that immediately because it makes me think of a discussion I had with a, a leader in Northern Uganda who was writing up and documenting traditional justice practices. And I said, well, why are you suddenly writing this up? And he said, the problem with Westerners is they, they accept something only if they can read about it. They don't listen. You know, so we have to write it down because otherwise it doesn't exist. <laughs> so suddenly you've got these huge books on traditional justice in northern Uganda. Now, one thing I don't want to be doing is to romanticize the local because there are often huge justice issues also with traditional practices. For instance, for the position of women. I mean, but uh, what I, I do want to... I, w I do want to be those mechanisms to be part of the debate. And very often what you see in, in situations of conflict is that also those mechanisms are hugely put to the test and that women are actually debating about their role in them. So to give that an opportunity. Now, th and that relates also to the point that you're making, very valid point um, about that you're making about states. In all fairness, the commission has given this um, report or submitted it to states, international organizations and others. Now, the great thing is we are all others, you know? We are all free to comment on it. And I think through public discussions like this, if you care about it, do send your views. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure whether to put an email address is, but I'm, I'm sure it, one can find it. Um, the key question, or my key concern, is that actually this is considered as this rather legalistic uh, exercise that deters people from engaging with it because it's about the debate of little words here and complex terms, usually in Latin, because that makes the entire thing look more sophisticated, um, and therefore deters people from engaging with the debate. Um, so, and, and, yeah, and you're right, in, in, in lots of parts of the world, they don't even know that their government is part of the negotiations to this uh, document. So all the more yeah, importance to spread the news, I would say. So have we been here before? Exactly. And have we been here before is even the argument that's being used in favor of it because crimes against humanity are considered the, um, the, the, the weak sibling of genocide and war crimes. Genocide and war crimes already have their conventions, the Geno 1948 Genocide Convention and the 1949 Geneva Conventions for War Crimes. Crimes against humanity is the only crime within the jurisdiction of international courts that do not have their own convention. And therefore, there seems to be a gap, and therefore, this project is now um, pushed. I'm not as, I don't want to sound as cynical that I think I'm against the entire project. I think it is useful to be able to hold states to account for not doing anything, for instance, to prevent crimes against humanity. Um, but I am more concerned m about the absoluteness of some of the proposed rules. And in that sense, I think what is difference between this convention and previous conventions is that it's far um, stronger in the obligations on states and far more absolute than, for instance, the genocide and the war crimes uh, conventions, or the genocide and the Geneva conventions. And then, yes, the South African model. I'm, I'm not sure that I want to say, look, we have to adopt the South African model everywhere. It also had huge problems, but at least it was a model that was adopted uh, really internally debated and accepted and defended. Um, and that is, I think, the point that, or wh where I do see something that, that we should promote, is that there is such a wide debate in society about what justice should look like. I'm more skeptical about the proposal of the ICC being the uh, negotiator or the facilitator, and that's simply because of structural biases. So if you are an international criminal court with a mandate to end impunity, your professional and structural and almost necessary bias is in favor of criminal prosecutions. <laughs> and that's what you should be. Mm. So is that the best forum to do these things? Rather, what I think is that the International Criminal Court should pay some sort of deference to states that come to their own way of dealing with the past. Now, it's interesting that when the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court was negotiated, they included the provision that said that the court may consider the interest of justice and that it's not I always in the interest of justice to prosecute. And countries such as South Africa, when they signed this Rome Statute Agreement, thought that this was almost an escape route for their 
agreement. But what happens if you give such a legal provision to criminal lawyers, they say no, the presumption must be that prosecution is in the interest of justice and the interest of peace are not within the interest of justice. The interest of peace are somebody else's business, that's the UN Security Council. We are just here to prosecute. And that is the reason why I am so cautious with this convention, because this convention as such might actually leave some discretion in the text. But if you give this to criminal lawyers to interpret, they will say you need criminal uh, proceedings. <laughs> Right, uh, I think this will have to be our last round because the clock is against us. Um, we, we've got <coughs> one just... The ladies. Yeah, yeah, well, there's, there's lots of people's hands up, all right. Um, considering that many, um, uh, like, criminals who commit major crimes are recidivists, uh, who are often getting bailed out of jail, mm -hmm. how, is, how does the court of law attempt to stop them from continuing what they were doing, just looking at recent events such as the Harvey Weinstein scandal and many others? Thank you. Okay, thank you. Um, okay, jump back. Thank you. <coughs> Sorry. Um, the Bosnian political peace settlement 20 years ago yeah. created a profoundly unjust political system that was supposed to be temporary. I mean, it discriminates against Jews, Roma, yeah. others. But 20 years later, it's very difficult to change it because it's entrenched. Does that show peacekeepers can't just do peace before justice, but they need to be considering mm. justice in the long term as well because these temporary settlements become permanent? Okay, good, powerful question. And then one more there in the middle and then we better draw stumps. Thank you. Is the answer to your convention problem uh, to keep the universal jurisdiction and the universal prohibition against crimes against humanity because that's a good norm and that's what other torture convention or whatever has done, but to give the warring parties in the unusual international criminal world the right themselves to grant amnesties because then you incentivize the peace process but you keep the norm uh, mm. otherwise than through that amnesty. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, of course. Um, so I would like to thank you because you actually reminded me of one argument in the response to your question about the difference between the national and the international. Because I don't think that with crimes against humanity, this is really a crime with in which there is much recidivism. It's not like it's not kind of crimes of opportunity. Okay, let's we have a chance to grab some money, or we have a chance to commit some crimes against humanity. Let's let's go for it. Um, and this is precisely because they are part of this political context. So if the political context changes, very often the incentive to commit these crimes is also um, gone. Dayton, extremely difficult. Um, but I think it's almost the opposite argument. So Dayton was accompanied by justice in the sense that there was the ICTY, the, the, the Tribunal for Yugoslavia. And Dayton did not affect the existence or the work of the Yugoslav Tribunal. So we have Dayton on the one hand and the Yugoslav Tribunal on the other hand, each going in their direction. I think it points that the lesson from Dayton is twofold. First, um, that it, everything was far too, um, as you say, um, it became fixed, and the provisions itself were not sufficiently transitional. So one lesson from Dayton is you need to have an agreement that says that in five years, this will be for five years, and then it will be open. Whereas now, the, the regulations as to who can become president are there forever because they can't get agreement to change it. The second lesson is about this integration of justice into something else. So justice was really this separate track with an international tribunal doing justice and then the people in Bosnia doing the rest. And I think the key thing that is that justice is part of the debate about how do we deal with our past. Um, and then finally, very quick on yeah, the um, uh, yeah, sorry, it is, we, um, I think I'm even um, uh, um, more pro for keeping the convention as it is than what you propose. Um, because there is a risk with parties giving themselves amnesties, because there's a huge question of the legitimacy of that. Can you give yourself an amnesty as warring parties? Rather, I would say that the national authorities of a state should have the leeway not to prosecute if other objectives are being pursued and if these mechanisms have been uh, subjected to 
a broad societal debate and, and process. So there can have been a referendum, although referendums don't always come up with the most nuanced <laughs> outcomes. Um, as you know, as you can hear from my accent, I have some views about that, but that's another debate. And um, or, or just a really broad civil society participation in discussions about what a transitional justice arrangement looks like. Fantastic, Sarah. Thanks so very much. Um,